We are on uh, week nine of our 10-week journey through the Ten Commandments, so we'll wrap it up next week. And uh, this morning we come to the command to not bear false witness against your neighbor, or in simpler terms, that we shall not lie. And uh, if you remember, these commands um, are really framed up as invitations from God to the community of Israel um, that are a gift to them designed to help them create a society that's marked by flourishing. And so after hundreds of years in captivity and slavery under Egypt, uh, the Israelites are now preparing to enter into the promised land and they're going to be establishing uh, this new community as an expression of what it looks like to be people living in right relationship with God and with one another and with the rest of the world. And so God gives these 10 commands or invitations to say, if you want a life marked by flourishing, uh, if you want to live in such a way that displays for the world my character and who I am and what I'm like, then this is a basic way uh, to start pursuing that. And so um, many of these seem like really basic kind of um, elementary moral rules, right? Um, when we talk about don't steal and, and don't lie and that sort of thing. And, um, and so on one hand, we do want to simply engage them at face value and say that when God invites his people to live a life devoted to the truth, a life where we do not bear false witness against one another, where we don't lie, don't want to overcomplicate that, right? And for most of us as parents, we know how significant this is in the kind of character that we're seeking to see cultivated within the lives of our kids, that probably above almost anything else our kids can do when they lie, um, we take that the most seriously, right? And, um, and I think for God, it's a, sim it's a similar kind of dynamic where he's going, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that we can talk about when it comes to becoming mature Christians, but let's not overlook some of these basics of what it looks like to be human well, okay? And so, um, <clears throat> so don't lie. Okay, we got that. Um, it is an interesting world that we live in um, when you start to think about what do these commands look like fleshed out in our day and age, in our modern culture. If you remember a couple years ago, Oxford Dictionary, um, for their word of the year, uh, chose the word post-truth in 2016. Um, which they define as that which relates to or denotes circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeal to emotion and personal belief. And so in the, uh, in the latter, latter part of 2016, obviously we had the U.S. presidential election, you had Brexit, you had the introduction into the modern vocabulary, phrases like fake news, phrases like alternate facts, um, you have these theories of collusion, you have whatever's going on with Facebook pu publishing these misleading ads uh, during the campaigns and all that kind of stuff. And it exposed this new reality that at a public level, at a social level, um, that people are now 
uh, on the large, less concerned um, whether or not things or stories are true factually and more concerned how those stories can be appropriated for the sake of our narrative, right? And so uh, one, a, a different way of saying it is that we prefer things that feel true to those things that actually are true, right? And um, so I'm going to show you a picture that isn't controversial at all. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this uh, a couple months ago now, and I don't want to make a lot of comment about it, but um, you, this, this moment in national media kind of exposed this post-truth dynamic in a really, uh, really crazy way where the moment this story breaks, this picture comes out, you have both sides of this politicized political spectrum um, capturing this moment as their truth. Right and hero, heroifying. What's the word I'm looking for? Heroizing, making a hero out of one side, <laughs> villainizing. Is there a word for that? Nobody. All right. Somebody make one up. It would help. Um, and you're going. The the story isn't actually what happened. The story is what it looks like is happening. Right, and we immediately latch on to one side of the story or other, and as the facts of actually what happened comes out, we kind of pick and choose which of those facts we want to absorb because they will reinforce our narrative and our side. Okay, and so um, this is just one of millions of these examples that show up on a regular basis in our 24-hour news cycle as we scroll through social media, uh, wherever else we're exposed to this kind of stuff. And uh, it's a fascinating observation to say that we now live in what's largely considered a post-truth society, where it's not so much that we're acknowledging the truth and choosing to disregard it, but we're ignoring truth altogether and instead uh, attach meaning to those things that reinforce our own narrative. So Ravi Zacharias says this about... Uh, the word post-truth. He goes, interestingly, the media, which flirt with untruths, and the academy, which never hesitates to replace absolutes with postmodern relativism, have come together to give our culture a new word. Their explanation is not so much that they are coining a new word as they are affirming a reality, a truth about the way we coddle the lie, the ultimate self-defeating statement. Okay, so really interesting time to uh, wrestle with this question of what does it look like to live a life where rather than lie, we are committed to the truth. And I think in some ways what we've lost is the ability or at least the willingness to try to see the world through the eyes of another. And I think in Jesus' great wisdom is he invites us to walk not just a life marked by love and justice, but ultimately a life marked by truth. It requires us to actually be willing to separate ourselves from our preferred narratives and be able to see the world um, from the other side of the situation. And so I would sum it up by saying this, that the, the Bible clearly teaches that there is this thing called truth. And our experience doesn't dictate the truth, right? And within post-modernity, that would be a common way of thinking about things, that what's true for me is true for me, what's true for you is true for you, and it's based on our own experience, our own internal sense of 
morality or reality or whatever it is. But in the biblical worldview, truth is this thing that exists. It correlates to what is, what is reality, and it exists whether we experience it or comprehend it or not. And for for us as followers of Jesus to be people who are devoted to that truth, it actually requires a sense of humility, right? It requires us to be willing to understand that there is truth whether or not we see it or experience it ourselves, and therefore the Christian life in a lot of ways could be summed up as a matter of conforming or letting our lives be conformed to what is letting our lives be conformed to the truth. When the human instinct and the cultural trend is to do the exact opposite, to alter the truth in order to fit my life. Right? So we see this at a large-scale political level, but we also see it in day-to-day kind of stuff. A few years ago, I started learning how to play golf. And I'll be the first to tell you, it's way harder than it looks. Right, especially when you get to the hole with the little windmill, and it, you, uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, and when you're a bad golfer like me, you spend a lot of time like out in the woods or um, in the tall grass or something like that. And when you finally make your way onto the green and you know sink your putt, um, there's that moment where you know you're keeping score. And uh, I know nobody's counting for me, and I have that temptation to say, well, you know. Technically, it was, I don't know if that was really a shot or not, you know, and, um, and I'm going to fudge my score just a little bit um, or something like that. And even in that little moment, right, where I'm going, I'm willing to say that I got a five instead of a seven or something like that. Um, am I really willing to sacrifice my integrity for a single golf shot? And even if nobody else that I'm playing with or anybody else ever knows or finds out, here's what it exposes, that I'd rather change the story to fit me than change myself to fit the story, right? I would rather alter the truth to fit my narrative than allow my life and narrative to be altered according to the truth. And I think that temptation and that tendency runs really deep within us. We're narcissistic people, we're individualistic people, we're self-centered people. And that's why for kids who embody all those characteristics in the most pure and robust form, the act of lying comes so naturally. Rather than to acknowledge what really happened, what I really did, we want to alter the truth in order to serve ourselves. Now let me give you one more example that you might be... Surprised to hear from a pastor, but what if it was beyond the shadow of a doubt, scientifically, historically proven that Jesus of Nazareth never existed? I don't know how we could ever come to that conclusion, but what if somehow, objectively, they were able to say that Jesus of Nazareth never existed? Here's my question Would you still be a Christian? Now, you would think the right answer is yes. But the truth is, who would you be following? Who would your life be based on? It would be based on a lie if Christ never walked the earth. But it feels true, and so we, many of us, would 
choose to continue to believe the myth, even if it was exposed as a lie. And in that sense, post-truth has crept into us as well. Now, it may sound weird, but that's what I think even the Apostle Paul is wrestling with when he goes, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then we're to be pitied more than anybody else. We have wasted our lives. If the story isn't true, if the gospel isn't true, if Jesus isn't real, then this whole thing falls apart. And so for us, we walk by faith, not because of all the benefits or the feelings, the emotional uh, satisfaction that comes with a relationship with God. We're Christians because it's true. Because the story is true. And if it's not, then all the warm fuzzies of worship and all the, you know, uh, goosebump moments and quiet times or whatever else, like it may feel true, but it's not. And so we hold by conviction and by faith that this story is true and this God we serve is real. Which uh, would cause us then, as followers of Jesus, to live outside of this dominant flow of a post-truth society and be people that are constantly committed to knowing, discerning, speaking, and living in accordance with the truth, even when that comes at a cost to ourselves. Right? And so in the original context in which this command is given, uh, Exodus 20.16 states that you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And so clearly the picture um, or the context is that of a courtroom, right? Where you have somebody on trial and a witness is brought um, to say that, yeah, I saw this person do this. Or here's what I witnessed. Here is um, my restating of the events that happened in reality. And the hope is that as those who testify in a courtroom are committed to speaking the truth, that therefore justice is possible. And so you start to see the brilliance of what God is designing for his people in this, counter, in this countercultural kingdom community where if there's going to be justice, there has to be truth. There can be no justice where there is no truth. As Ken famously says, that, that, that truth corresponds to what is, justice corresponds to what ought to be. And the two are, are inseparably linked. And so we carry this tradition into our modern legal system as well, right? When somebody's going to give a testimony in court, they're sworn in, and they say, I'll tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, or the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God, right? There's even a prayer built into this because we understand that we need help knowing and speaking the truth. And the hope is that as a community is devoted to speaking the truth when it comes to these kind of legal and official matters, that therefore justice can actually be enacted within that society. And so that's the specific context, but the general context is much, much broader. It's all of life. It's not just when you're sworn in and giving a testimony in court, but it's in all of life that we would be people who tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and rely on the help of God to do that. And so um, God's in, in envisioning this community where people are devoted to knowing and speaking the truth to one another, 
right? And all the subtle ways that we can mess that up. Obviously, straight up lying, and especially lying that has malicious or violent or harmful intent, right? But also those kind of little white lies, also those embellishments, those exaggerations, any kind of stretching of the truth that would create uh, instability within relationships, God is warning against. He's saying, my people are, lived, are meant to live lives marked by a commitment to truth-telling. Because the truth is that lying <clears throat> creates injustice, lying creates violence, lying creates harm, but on the other hand, truth does all the opposites, Right? When we speak the truth to one another, it leads to justice, it leads to reconciliation, it leads to wholeness. Where deceit destroys, truth builds. And so when you think about um, relationships, the relationships that matter most to us and are most central to our human experience, we obviously have this relationship with the God who made us and is on a mission to save us. We have a relationship with ourselves. We have a relationship with one another. We have a relationship with the rest of creation. And when you look at something like deceit, something like lying, it actually takes a toll on all of those relationships. And most of us, from firsthand experience, know exactly what that's like. You have a friend or a family member or somebody that you trusted and you found out at some point that they hadn't been telling you the truth. Right? That they had been, for whatever reason and in whatever form, withholding the truth from you or maybe even flat out lying to you. And when that came out, that relationship collapsed, right? Because we know how central the need for trust is if we're going to be able to live in right relationships with one another. And so we've all seen the ways that lies and the withholding of truth can fracture the relationships that we have with each other. And so God's guarding his people against that. That I want you to be people that can live in whole and just and reconciled relationships with one another. And that requires the willingness to speak the truth, to tell the truth to each other, even when it's inconvenient, even when it comes at a cost the invitation is that the truth brings freedom and the truth brings justice. When it comes to our relationship with God, we understand that God knows the truth and so it's not like there's information he's looking to us to unveil for him. But all the more pronounced, when you are in relationship with somebody who is and knows all truth, then the act of truth-telling is simply what we refer to as confession. Right? And I don't just mean acknowledging your sins, which is certainly included in that, but the idea of confessing that which is to a God who knows all is an act of worship. That when we declare the truth about who God is and what he's done, when we declare the truth about our own life and our own experience, that is what we call confession. And so I hope that you've gotten over the last year as we've been implementing this practice of confession into our worship gatherings every week. The hope isn't to try to um, just like make us feel guilty 
or come up with a list of things that we feel badly about. The hope is to actually align our life and our words with reality, to confess the truth that we haven't loved God with our whole heart, that we haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves, that we have sinned by what we've done and what we've said and by what we've not done and not said. And so the practice of confession, especially guided in a worship context, is a practice in speaking the truth. And our hope is that that practice would actually begin to spill over into the rest of our lives that we would be people on a regular basis who confess the truth about the ways that we're broken, the ways that we're still unformed in our faith, the places that we're struggling with sin. So several weeks ago, uh, when our elders were gathered together um, for our our monthly time of prayer and planning, um, the, the Spirit prompted me before these guys that God has called to shepherd this church um, prompted me to share some of the broken places in my life and some of the sin that I'm struggling with today. And I don't need to share that with everybody in the world, but I, all of us need someone or some place where we can go, here's what's really going on with me, right? Here's the truth about what's going on within me. And I'm gonna name it and I'm going to let it be known, and it may be embarrassing, or it may be inconvenient, or it may come at a cost, but ultimately this vision for knowing and speaking the truth is an invitation to freedom, and an invitation to true life, reconciliation, justice, and flourishing. And so, as Protestant Christians, we no longer have the formal You know, confession practice, sometimes I wish we did, even though there's some weirdness to it or whatever, but um, what we have is the opportunity to be a kingdom of priests to one another and to live in relationships where it's not weird for us to be able to say, can I share with you some some of the sin in my life, some of the places where I'm wrestling, some places where I'm struggling, right? And we found, for those that have done this, an incredible liberation of our hearts, that the truth truly does uh, set us free in those moments, Um, which obviously then ties into the relationship that we have with ourselves. And um, I think this vision of truth and truthfulness really connects to this idea that a life would be marked by integrity, that we would be the same person on Saturday night as we are on Sunday morning that we would be the same person in our private life that we are in our public life, that we would be the same person online that we are in the real world, right? And we all know just all those tensions that we navigate, all these different spaces and the temptation to maintain an image or put on a show um, in, in the sense that I'm pretending that I'm doing better than I actually am. Right? This is what Instagram is for, right? to sh- show the world how amazing my life is, and everybody's joked about Like Nobody ever just puts up a picture of like a bowl of cereal all right? or a dirty kid or something like that. Everything's polished, and, and I do think there is something for us as followers of Jesus to think about in terms of the image of ourself that we're, portraying, that we're, uh, that we're putting into the world 
Is it true? Is it true? For those that have a public life, um, is your public persona congruent with your personal and private life? And we have to wrestle deeply with these kinds of questions because I think in this sense, maintaining images actually fractures our souls. That the failure to live and to speak the truth in every area of life leads to a divided relationship with ourselves and we lose a sense of who we really are because we're always trying to be who everybody expects us or we think they want us to be. And so for God's people from the Old Testament all the way through into the Jesus story in the New Testament, this value and practice of truth has always been central to what it means to be the people of God. And so when you get to the uh, book of 3 John, where John is writing this letter to early, uh, an early Christ follower, he is right to celebrate, to rejoice that these people he's heard are devoted to the truth. I gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is what gets pastors excited, right? This is what brings true joy and delight to the heart and to the soul of a pastor is to know that the people that he's shepherding, the people that he's teaching, the people that he's loving and caring for have this, um, this commitment to know and to live and to walk and to speak the truth because that is what's central to this whole thing. Not just the feelings, not just our own experiences, as much as all that matters, but what ultimately matters is this story of God breaking into human history in the person of Jesus, beginning this cosmic revolution to make all things new. And so we're here on a regular basis. On Sundays, we gather around this truth We gather around this story, gather around this God because there are so many other narratives. There's so many other forces, so many other voices that would compete for the allegiance of our hearts, that would compete for the thing that we base our identity and our story in. And I don't know about you, but on a regular basis, I need to be reminded. I need to be reminded of the truth. And I need a community to help me center myself in the truth of who God is and in the truth of God's story. Because it's really easy to forget. It's really easy to get distracted. And it's really easy to believe the lies that the culture would tell us. And so we come here on a regular basis. And I'm well aware that every Sunday isn't a mind-blowing educational experience where you're going to learn something you've never learned before, right? Um, There will be some times like that, but for the most part, we are here to be reminded. We're here to remember. We're here to center ourselves in that which we already know to be true. And that's why the writers of the scripture would say, don't give up the practice of meeting together because it is so easy to slip away. 
And so ultimately, when we talk about being a people committed, committed to the truth, all of these commandments have in their own way an expression of the character of God embedded into them, right? That we are called to live this way because this is the way that God is. And so ultimately, when we talk about truth as followers of Jesus, we don't talk about it as a set of doctrines or a list of beliefs, but for us, truth is a person. Truth is a person. So when we receive an invitation to know the truth, it's not just to a bunch of beliefs but it's an invitation to know Jesus, to live in restored relationship with the one who in and of himself is truth. In Hebrews chapter 6, the writer says that people swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. And God did this so that, listen to this, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. And so the hope is that we would find great encouragement and great joy in knowing that the God who made us, the God who is saving us, is a God for which it is impossible for him to lie. What kind of comfort, what kind of joy, and what kind of encouragement do we have in knowing that the one who knows us the most, knows us the best, loves us the most, will never lie to us. In that sense, we understand the connection between truth and love, right? That in his great love and in his uh, unity within himself, that God is always committed to speaking the truth to us. And we start by understanding the truth that's contained in the scriptures, where Jesus uh, prays that the Father would sanctify his children by the truth, and he says, your word is truth. What an incredible gift that we have a God who speaks the truth to us, first through the scriptures, and then secondly, in any other way that he would choose to communicate, right? Through the promptings of the Spirit in our hearts, through the proclamation of the good news, through the testimony and the witness of the rest of creation, all of it that points us to the person and character of God, it's all true. And it's all an expression of love to be received with gratitude and with joy. And so, as we are on a quest then to become people committed to the truth, I think a practice that would be central to that would be people that are shaped by the Word of God. People that on a regular basis are bringing ourselves before, uh, before this text right, and are not coming to it um, <clears throat> in order to uh, test it and see whether it lives up to our standards and our experience and our narrative, but actually allowing our lives to be shaped according to the truth of God's word. And it, we'd rather not, wouldn't we? <laughs> we'd rather not. 
But the truth is, so for many people, they approach the scripture saying, I, I'm, tr- I'm trying to get something out of it. And the point is that the scripture would try, try to get something out of us. That it would ex- expose the places in our lives where we are yet to be conformed to the truth about who God is and the life that he's called us to. And so if we're going to be people of truth, we need to be people of the word. And my encouragement for you, if you don't have a regular practice of engaging scripture, and I don't, I'm not going to tell you how often or how long or what that has to look like, but we are missing an incredible opportunity to divine truth, to commune with the one who is truth. And on a regular basis, this is the means by which God exposes brokenness, sin, falsehood, and lies in my own life and calls and invites me to be reconciled to him um, through confession and through faith. And so ultimately, truth isn't a doctrine, but truth is a person. Jesus bears witness to the truth about who God is. And I would argue, therefore, that post-truth behavior is incompatible with a life of discipleship to Jesus. That before you hit share or send or whatever it is, um, that we would be committed to asking, is this not just something that I like the way it feels, or is this actually an expression of, of truth as far as it can be found? In the way that we relate to one another, and especially within the relationships that matter most in our marriages, in our homes, in our, in our communities, are we, be, are we people that are devoted to truth-telling for the sake of love, for the sake of justice, and for the sake of reconciliation? So that would bring me great joy if we were to become a kind of people that were known for always seeking and speaking the truth. So can we do that? Sounds good. All right. Why don't you stand and we'll come to the table this morning. Father, we are grateful that you love us enough to always speak the truth to us. And we're grateful for the incredible foundation of hope that that gives us, that you are, uh, you are truth in and of yourself. And that is the rock that we build our house on, that we build our lives on. And so, Spirit, in a, <clears throat> just a very um, simple way, we want to invite you this morning to convict our hearts and to help us see the places in our life where we are failing to live um, in commitment to the truth. God, I pray just right now that you would help us to identify the ways that we're maintaining an image that we're doing better than we actually are. Identify the ways that we're harming the relationships that matter most to us by withholding truth. that you would reveal to us the sin that we have yet to name and to acknowledge before you and before our brothers and sisters. And it can be a scary thing, Lord, to see those things and to face them. But we stand here this morning convicted that the truth will set us free that you don't want us to live lives hiding, pretending, ashamed, guilty, unknown, 
So Spirit, would you call forth the truth in us? Would you cultivate an environment in our relationships here where we know and speak the truth to one another? And ultimately, Lord, would this be a time for us to proclaim and confess truth back to you in a way that glorifies your name and honors who you are and what you're doing in the world. So thank you for the invitation to come and to commune with you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Would you meet us here today? Receive our praise. In Jesus' name.